so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Well, today's a very special episode here on the podcast as we're celebrating our 100th episode. For those of you who might be newer to the podcast, we began this project back in April of 2020, about a month or so after my first book, The Age of AI, came out with Zondervan. We initially called the podcast The Weekly Tech Podcast, which is in the vein of the newsletter that we still have around with the same name. The goal of the podcast was to help Christians and really all people to think better about the role of technology in our lives and how to navigate these challenges as well as the opportunities before us with wisdom. The initial podcast format was focused on me talking about a major article or news story in light of the Christian ethic and then covering some of the top headlines from the week. But based on listener feedback, we decided to shift our focus to interviewing some of the top leaders in society to address these pressing questions of theology, ethics, and philosophy in the public square. While we've always retained an emphasis on technology and technology issues, the latest shift to the new name of the Digital Public Square kind of better described how I saw technology as being part of every aspect of our life rather than a completely different set of issues from the things that we talk about normally in the public square, including in Christian ethics. Here at the ERLC, I regularly talk about how technology isn't really a separate set of ethical issues per se, but really an element of nearly everything we work on, from marriage and sexuality to religious freedom, biblical justice, and even theological anthropology, or what does it mean to be human? Technology is an element of each of these areas, and it really undergirds much, if not all, of the major theological, ethical, and philosophical issues of our day. As we've talked a lot about here on the podcast so far, This is because technology really isn't simply just a tool that we use, that we often commonly kind of understand technology as, but really something that's really using us in many ways. Technology is shaping us, it's forming us in subtle but very powerful and distinct ways. It represents a culture or society in which we inhabit and live our lives. And if we're honest, we truly can't disconnect from this culture or disconnect from technology because it's forming us, it's shaping us in every way that we use it and interact in the world today. But we can also seek to navigate these challenges with biblical wisdom and insight as we seek to follow Jesus well in this digital age. 
To that end, we've welcomed a number of guests on the podcast throughout the years and many more on the way this fall. And so today I want to take a look back at some of the most downloaded and consequential conversations we've had on the podcast so far. But before we do that, I want to make sure that I thank the entire team that's been working on this and for their support and work on this podcast over the years. Our initial launch team was made up of Marissa Postel, who was one of my research coordinators, who helped really get this project off the ground, and she managed it well for so many years. Gary Lancaster was our first audio engineer and helped me to sound a lot better than I might actually sound on the podcast. He did such a great job getting this podcast off the ground and helping to coordinate all of the various ways and places that the podcast would appear And then Cameron Hainer joined our team as my current research coordinator, who's led this so well over the years of booking podcast guests and helping to organize and listen and edit. Cameron has worked alongside Mark Owens, who's been just a fabulous editor and audio producer for the podcast and really helping this to sound good and to reach a number of people. One of the kind of sad but also exciting realities that we have coming up in the next month or so is this will actually be Cameron Hainer's last week with us here on the podcast as part of the URLC. He's moving on to bigger and better things, and I'm so proud of him and the way the Lord's worked in his life. And so I just want to celebrate Cameron specifically and the hard work that he's put in on the podcast and the newsletter. But as we get going this week, I just want to look back at the top episodes and the various guests that we've had on the podcast as we look forward to what God has in store for us coming this fall. So first up in our recap of these top episodes here on the Digital Public Square, I welcome Dr. Ray Ortland on the podcast a little bit ago, and we talked a lot about the nature of ministry as well as kind of the scourge of pornography and how to think about these issues. I've long looked up to Ray, and it was just a real joy to host him here on the podcast. Of course, I, I have no objection to software filters and the other sort of practical strategies. That's all fine, but we all know that what is most profound about us, the deep source out of which we actually live, the deepest thing about us is what we believe. What we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about every member of the human race. So um, I don't think much is going to change if we're only addressing surface level behaviors. Behavior modification, okay, fine. I suppose there's a place for that. But what if your generation of magnificent young men dares to believe in who God says they really are? Software filters and so forth, they'll they'll help. But a profound movement of God's mercy and grace will flow out of these men out to the world. I deeply believe that no one is helped by being scolded and shamed and belittled and coerced into behavior modification. I deeply believe anyone and everyone can be helped by being encouraged, included, respected, and lifted up. And that is the way of the gospel. The gospel has been transforming people's personal character and renewing societies for 2,000 years. (laughs) And uh, I believe that that is the most powerful, most hope-inspiring remedy for the scourge of pornography that is descending upon our generation. I know that Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, is sprinting through this world today, saving people, scooping them up in his arms, right and left, and having a blast doing so. The risen Christ is not tired. He is not fed up. He is not tired of you or me or anyone. 
And uh, if when we believe that, when that becomes the central conviction in our perception of reality, we start getting free. So next up on the podcast, we have a clip from Dr. Alan Noble. I've welcomed Dr. Noble here on the podcast a couple times, talking about his various books, whether it was Disruptive Witness, talking about the nature of how technology is shaping how we perceive apologetics and evangelism, as well as his latest book, You Are Not Your Own. And this is a clip from an interview about his latest book. So other people become instruments or tools that we can use, other forms of technology, really, that we could use to get ahead, right? So um, I think when you consider the the, the rise of, of pornography, um, it seems to me that that's a way of instrumentalizing other human beings and their existence, their bodies, for your own pleasure. And uh, if fundamentally you just belong to yourself, then that is the only person you owe uh, moral allegiance to. That is the only person you have to be uh, assured is making something meaningful out of their out of their lives. So there are all kinds of ramifications that come out of that. You start to believe that your life is a project. And uh, you're the only one who can guide that project, who can work on that project, who decide when the project is has achieved its fullness. And that disorders us in lots of ways. It puts a burden on us, a, a burden to constantly act and constantly pull ourselves up. Another way of thinking about it, another aspect of this is belonging. So in the book, I write about these, I try to break it down to these five sort of categorical implications that overlap, but it's a useful way of understanding them. Uh, the first is justification, and then I think I do identity and meaning and value and belonging. And uh, belonging, I think, is a very powerful one because it describes our relationship and our bonds and natural obligations to other people and to creation and then, then of course, also to God. And so when we are our own and we fundamentally belong to ourselves, when the only thing we can really be certain of is that our lives are our own and we are responsible for making them rich, a good story, an interesting story, dramatic, exciting, so on and so forth, then bonds, relationships, belonging becomes what uh, this philosopher I love named Zygmunt Bauman calls until further notice. In other words, my relationship to my wife is until further notice. My relationship to my job is until further notice. My friendships are all until further notice. Now, that sounds crass, but that is very often how we are taught to think about our relationships because you need to have that sort of liquid quality to your relationships. It's fluid. Nothing's really tying you down in order for you to pursue the life that you want. And, and I, I could just think of so many instances, tragic instances of, of people I know and then certainly famous people where they're in a marriage and that at a certain point in their life, they meet someone new or they decide that they've discovered something new about themselves. And all of a sudden, they realize that this discovery or this new relationships means that their old bonds— their old belonging to their wife and children no longer hold. They no longer matter. And I guess what, what I would want to say is, well, you know what? If we are our own, you're right. You probably should abandon your family and pursue that because you're the only one who can make your life worth living. But if we belong to someone else, if we belong to Christ, then we have real obligations that cost us but are good. So next up, I'd welcome Dr. James Davidson Hunter and Dr. Paul Nataleski on to talk about their book from Yale University Press, Science and the Good, talking about the limits of science and the big questions of morality. One of the fun things about this is that Dr. Nataleski and Dr. Hunter, we talk about the nature of science as well as its limits in terms of a lot of the big ethical and moral questions we ask today. So yeah, in terms of the, the unsettled nature of science, 
I don't have a ton to say about that. I mean, I, as I recall, part of what I th- in my opinion, made the book difficult to write is that there's so much confusion about what a science of morality is and what it would hope to show. We put the tiered system in place to try to resolve some of that unclarity. And what we went with is saying, well, let's, let's take, say there are three levels, three levels of results that a scientific study of morality could, could give us. Level one, that's the gold standard. That would be some kind of demonstrative, empirical, tangible proof, or at least evidence that, you know, if something or other is right or wrong, that this or that is good or bad, that could tell us something that directly impinges on how we might, how we ought to live. Level two, backing off from that a little bit, um, but still connecting with, with the realm of ethics, would be evidence from science that, that helps us decide uh, which theory of morality is right or wrong. So maybe it's not some kind of proof or, or demonstration that um, it's good to love your spouse or your neighbor or something, but it might say, you know, maybe there could be some kind of experiment that showed us that virtue ethics was was false. You know, that, that would be an example of a level two result, if, if that could be achieved. Level three is the weakest level, and this results in the level three category are results that say, uh, that show us, well, look, here's something true that we discovered through science about uh, about morality or about ethics or about human cognition uh, on ethical questions. And so, in pretty clearly, there are a lot of good empirical results here. You, they put people in, in uh, brain scanners and ask them moral questions, and we find out that with certain kinds of questions, certain, you know, the, the um, neural correlates of thought happen in different places. You know, things like this. We're learning information that's connected in some way to moral issues, but none of that uh, can really tell us or can, it can't tell us what's good or bad, right or wrong. Does it impinge on practical questions about how to live? Let let me just add a a little bit to that, that part of the reason we deconstructed um, or at least posed questions about the nature of science itself and tried to articulate different understandings of what a scientific science of morality would look like, what kind of findings it, it, it could could achieve, was to, again, to demystify something that is often presented as much more certain, much more authoritative uh, than it actually is. At the end of the day, science is a method, and it's a useful method, and Paul and I are very pro-science, but we also are pro-science in, in, in the sense that we believe it is a useful method. It is not authoritative for saying all things. And in fact, um, the methods themselves have to be interrogated. And and, and that task of interrogating the nature of science itself, but also the science of morality, is set against the backdrop of statements by some very famous public intellectuals in America who are speaking with great authority about what science tells us about how we should live or what's right and wrong and so on. So next up on the podcast, I welcome Samuel James on to talk about the nature of truth and technology. Samuel had written a really interesting article about the idea of negative epistemology or defining what we believe based on the opposite of what others believe. And that's part of the conversation we have today. I think I mentioned it in the article, the news story that I came across a couple weeks ago that said, uh, you know, based on some internal documents that had been 
uh, leaked by Facebook, it turned out that some of the largest Christian themed pages on the site were, were not operated by ministries or even necessarily by Christians. They were troll farms out in somewhere in Central Europe. And so the thought, you know, of watching particularly people that were close to me in back in 2016, kind of getting their information and sharing uh, memes and things like that about particular candidates or particular parties. And the, the idea that, you know, they, they never thought in their wildest dreams that this would be a troll farm out in Europe. But nevertheless, that was the source of that information. And that information was designed. It had a purpose by its creator to elicit a certain type of response. And so that's, that really was the burden of the article was speaking directly to Christians who are receiving their information from sources that are not rooted in transcendent truth. And one of the things I talk about a lot nowadays is uh, something I've termed negative epistemology, uh, which I take to mean it's the w- about the way you form your beliefs. So I think the way the Bible calls us to form our beliefs is to take every thought captive to the mind of Christ, which involves thinking carefully, thinking along the lines of transcendent truth, applying biblical principles, and then trying to articulate what Jesus would say about this particular issue, what the word of God says. And what I see in a lot of people right now, especially in the influence of social media and things like that, is when presented with a challenging topic or a question that they're, that's pretty novel, what they'll do is they'll kind of see who's saying what. And, and if the wrong kind of people, the people that they don't like, the people they perceive to be kind of on the other side of them politically, culturally, it, it kind of depends on whatever they're saying. And so I'm just going to say the opposite of what they say because I know they can't be right. And I think that's a very destructive way to go about forming our beliefs. And I think it's antithetical to the development of Christian intellectual integrity. In, in, in order to think about things, we have to be able to think positively, not negatively. And the reason is because sometimes the people who are opposite us in our beliefs and our values, sometimes they're right. Sometimes they see something that we can't see, and that's because of sin. That's because of the noetic effect of the fall. And we are all have blind spots, and we all have things that we cannot see in ourselves, in our own tribe. Uh, and what I see is negative epistemology is kind of an implicit denial of the noetic effect of sin. And it's saying, well, you're affected by <laughs> the fall, but I'm not. I can kind of see clearly, and I'm just kind of going to use you as a bellwether. And one of the effects of negative epistemology is that people end up being okay with things that in their wildest dreams, they never thought they would be. They end up excusing behaviors that they never would have thought of excusing. They end up kind of papering over things that they never would have thought. And that's because their values formations have actually shifted to fit their kind of cultural animosities. So I, and I think that is something that, that the Bible really does speak directly to. There's issues of love of neighbor there, but I think there's issues of truth. There's issues of how we're centering our intellectual lives. Are we, are we just trying to kind of own the other side or are we actually allowing the truth of the gospel, which is that we're sinners in need of a savior and we have permanent noetic effects, intellectual effects of, of being sinners. Uh, and we need people to help us see that. Um, so I think I think it's an issue of faithfulness to the Lord as well as just an intellectual scourge. 
So next up, we highlight a really interesting conversation I had with Dr. David Koisis, who's the author of a book called Political Visions and Illusions. We talked about the nature of political ideology, specifically in light of the Christian worldview. So this, this comes from page 25 of the, uh, of the second edition, and there are five questions that I lay out in terms of analyzing the ideology. So what is their creational basis? In other words, what facets of God's creation have they rightly focused on, even as they have effectively deified them? You know, and for liberalism, I think that's individual freedom, you know, individual liberty. It's a, it's a genuine good. It's something that, uh, that is guaranteed in the, in the uh, first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights. We have our Charter of Rights and Freedoms here in, in Canada. Those are very good things. Um, what, what do they see as a source of evil? Well, I think in, um, I'm going to use a fancy word, heteronomous authority. In other words, an authority that comes outside of our own wills being somehow imposed on us. That's, that's the source of evil, according to liberals, and not just liberals, but I think probably the adherence of, of many of the ideologies that, um, that we are faced with in the, in the contemporary world. Um, where do they locate the source of salvation, and what redemptive story do they tell? Well, in liberalism, it's a kind of continual progress in liberating ourselves from various constraints, whether they're natural constraints, whether they're political constraints, economic constraints, and somehow, as we as we free ourselves from those, that we are um, we are attaining uh, salvation, you know, a secular salvation, but it's a religious salvation all the same. Which inconsistencies have led to internal tensions within the ideology itself? Well, the early liberals, for example, um, wanted to have a strictly limited state, but within liberalism, there's there's also this this emphasis on the individual will. What happens if these individuals decide that they don't want the state to be quite as limited as, as their parents and grandparents had wanted? What if they want the state to provide this and that and, and other benefits for them as well? And that's a tension that we find right in the middle of liberalism, and it has fueled debates between so-called conservatives and so-called liberals in the United States for generations. Uh, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal expanded the state into to providing more services. Uh, you know, it probably had to be done in the context of the Great Depression. I'm not, I would never vilify the welfare state as, as some libertarians might. But, uh, but, but at the same time, there's also, there's also a tension right within the heart of liberalism that fuels the debates that go on within it and may perhaps lead to the end of liberalism at some point in the future. And then finally, to what extent are they able to account for the distinct place of politics in God's world? Um, liberalism doesn't do a very good job of this because politics is basically nothing more than the byproduct of, of individuals getting together into a kind of social contract. So, you know, from, I think, a biblical understanding of, of political authority is that political authority must do justice. And of course, commands to do justice are found throughout the Bible in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah or the Pentateuch. They're found in the Proverbs, they're found in the prophets and so forth. And, and in liberalism, justice is, is, if it happens at all, is a byproduct of the, of the collective wills of individuals. And so I think in many respects, liberalism fails on, on, that, on that count. It, it can't really account for the place of justice in God's world and the need for, for a political authority to be able to adjudicate the disputes that um, arise within a, a normal human society. So next up, I'd welcome Dr. Daniel Strange on the podcast to talk about his latest book, Making Faith Magnetic. And we talked about the nature of evangelism and apologetics, specifically in our contemporary and postmodern culture. 
So, I mean, I certainly don't think that technology is neutral in this. I think it does play a role. And actually, it probably accentuates or magnifies those things. So, for example, of course, social media gives us the connection that we want. But of course, social media gives it on our terms, as in we can have connection with others, but it's on our terms if we want to create our own identity rather than our real identity. So it can reveal and mask identity at the same time. So there's a there's a kind of a an autonomy about it, a fakeness about it, if we if we want to do that. And again, I think that does that does tie into the the exclusive humanism, I think, in terms of it's individualistic, but it's individualistic that is also showing that we do want to be connected. I mean, one of the examples I give, and I'm so outdated now, my kids would laugh, is that, you know, I still look at Facebook. I know none of my kids or even they'd look at Facebook anymore. But anyway, in 2012, I think Facebook had its billionth um, user. So there was this advert and it's all about connection. It's literally as if Zuckerberg could have been reading J.H. Bavink. It is about we need to connect. Here are the things in society that connects us. You know, he talks about chairs, basketball, a great nation. We need things to connect because the universe is dark. And again, it's that idea that we want connection. But I know that I can create my own identity that actually masks my who I really am. So, I mean, that's just one example. I mean, obviously, cancel culture is another great example as well that is exacerbated by social media. I mean, this is where Charles Taylor is very good, actually. He had an earlier essay called A Catholic Modernity, where he says something like, the problem with humanism is that humanism thought it was doing humanity a favour by getting rid of sin and total depravity. The problem is if you get away with those doctrines, you set the bar so high for humanity that when humanity can't reach it, there's nowhere to go. You have to then become coercive to try and get people to make the standard and they can't make the standard and isn't that what cancel culture is it's saying no strike one strike and you're out and so in some ways what we need to be doing is saying i don't mean this facetiously the doctrine of sin is good news because it says that we're not perfect we don't we you know jesus is both the standard and the savior as well there's a social um, conservative social critic in the UK called Douglas Murray who's written a book called The Madness of Crowds, which is a, a very good book. He's an atheist, doesn't but he's not a believer. Um, and he has this little section on forgiveness. Like he doesn't know how we can where forgiveness comes from, but he says we've lost this idea that there can be restoration and, and forgiveness. And I think that's a great example of where the whole of Christian theology helps us. But, you know, creation, fall, and redemption. That whole story is actually good news into some of these issues that we're facing at the moment because there's a moralism whether it's cancel culture or virtue signaling that is pretty terrifying the bar is set so high and sometimes i just think there's going to be no one left i mean (laughs) that's the situation isn't it so next up on the conversation i welcome david french to talk about his latest book divided we fall in this conversation we talk about the nature of social media especially a lot of the questions surrounding free speech and cultural division in this particular clip we're talking about a 1999 research paper done by Cass sunstein that helps to frame up a lot of the cultural divisions and questions about free speech we face today yeah this is an incredibly important um paper and I don't usually say that about academic papers, but every now and then you run across one that really explains a lot of about a lot about our world and a lot about our country. And this is a paper from Cass Sunstein, 1999. 
and it's called the law of group polarization. And what, and what the law of group polarization says is that when people of like mind gather, they tend to become more extreme. And so this is something you just sort of see in life. So for example, uh, if a group of people get together who are Second Amendment activists or advocates for the Second Amendment, and they start speaking together and they're critiquing, say, Joe Biden's gun control proposals, by the time they finish speaking, by the time they finish deliberating with each other, they're going to usually end up more committed to their position. When like-minded people get together and they talk to each other, they get more committed to their position. Think about it like this. I mean, how many people have gone to a really good Bible study and left it thinking, I love Jesus less? No. <laughs> you, When you go and you're around like-minded people and you are communicating with each other in a spirit of fellowship, it it strengthens your convictions. And so what ends up happening is that as Americans cluster and they wall off into these like-minded communities, and this is a, a process called the Big Sort, which is named from a 2009 book of that of that title, that we're sorting ourselves into these like-minded communities, we're insulating ourselves from the opposing thoughtful opposing points of view, and so we're becoming more radicalized, and we don't even really realize it because it's not like you're sitting there going thinking I'm becoming more radical. You're just agreeing with everyone around you. And everyone around you seems so sensible. And one of the interesting aspects of it is that the way this whole process works, and it can happen so completely that at the end of a deliberation, the entire group can move to become more radical than the most radical person was at the start of the deliberation. This is, so it's a very powerful force that is making Americans more radical. And you can even see this in some of the ideological data where it used to be that there was this big bell curve where the big bulk of Americans were sort of in this middle, the center right and the center left. And now what's happening is that bell curve is flattening and the extreme edges, which used to be really small, are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So next up, uh, welcome Dr. Carl Truman to talk about his latest book with Crossway, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We talk about the nature of the modern self as well as the idea of the sexual revolution and how a lot of these ideas tie together. In this clip, we talk about the philosopher Charles Taylor and how he helps us to frame up a lot of the big questions and debates that we're facing today. Taylor is, is one of those enviably polymathic people. He's been a politician. He's a political philosopher. He's a straight-down-the-line philosopher. He's a scholar of the German uh, philosopher Hegel. He's a historian. So he's a, he's a polymathic figure. What I found him particularly useful, I think, was on two fronts. One, Taylor identifies, correctly identifies, I think, romanticism as the key move in Western society, where inner feelings become constitutive of who we are. And he sees that as leading to the formation of a particular notion of the self. He calls this the expressive individual. Essentially, what he means by that is the self comes to be thought of as that which we feel inside, and the self manifests itself when it's able to behave outwardly in accordance with those inner desires. And that's where we get the language of authenticity. When you think today in society, we often use the language of authenticity when we're talking about people. Uh, good example provided by Bruce, now Caitlin Jenner, in his uh, interview with Diane Sawyer when he was talking about transitioning. And he made the point that, you know, uh, uh, finally, I'm going to be able to be 
who I always have been, essentially saying, finally, I can be authentic. Finally, I'm not going to be living a lie anymore. Now, you don't have to be a transgender person, I I think, to identify with that notion that I want to be outwardly, that which I feel to be inwardly. So that was one of Taylor's insights. Uh, Second one uh, is his notion of what what he calls the social imaginary. And I found this extremely helpful. The social imaginary points to the fact that most of us, in fact, all of us, don't relate to the world around us in terms of always thinking back to first principles. Life is life is not a syllogism. I, I don't get up from my chair and think, okay, where do I need to exit the room from? Oh, there's a door over there. I'll go through the door. I get up, I instinctively leave through the door. Uh, The social imaginary gets to the idea that that's how we think about an awful lot of things. It's how we think about morality. We tend to pick up the intuitions of the world around us, internalise them and make them our own. So we don't think always in terms of first principles when we think about morality. Good example might be provided by the, the gay marriage issue. Most people have not come to find gay marriage acceptable by reading heavy tomes of sexual ethics or sociology, sociological ethics. Most people have gay friends or have seen attractive images of gay couples on things like uh, Will the sitcom Will and Grace. It's not that they've been convinced by argument. It's that their intuitions have been shaped by broader cultural patterns. And I, th- I found that very helpful in, in approaching this, this notion of the modern self. It's not that we get up one morning and decide, let's be expressive individuals. The very air we breathe shapes, tilts, bends our intuitions towards that result. So in this final clip, I'd welcome Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior on the podcast to talk about the nature of literature and the importance of reading older books. One of the things she does so well on this podcast and throughout all of her work is help us to rediscover a lot of these classic texts and think about them in light of the Christian worldview. I want to start by confessing um, that for me in the past, you know, 10 or so years, reading has become more difficult. I mean, I feel my attention span shrinking as I spend more time online. So this that struggle is real. And so I'm thankful for that foundation I had going back many years of just of living in a world before digital media and, and reading. I have to draw on that so much these days. But reading fiction or or really any literature like poetry or drama is basically it it forms us more than informs us and that's something that we really push against in our culture today we we're so pragmatic and so utilitarian and we get on twitter we get on facebook we read essays and blogs and newspapers for information. Um, We're an information age, right? And so the idea of sitting down with words that aren't necessarily giving us new information, I mean, most stories do give us some new information, but that's not what they're there for. It's the words are arranged and constructed in a way that forms us because they are they're unfolding a story, they're using words in an artistic way that might be different from the way we might use the same word in conversation. They're revealing character and um, developing ethical dilemmas and we're making watching characters make decisions or make mistakes uh, and we're judging and analyzing and interpreting. That's what happens when we read literature 
we aren't just getting facts and information as we do in most of our other readings. So it actually forms the way that we think and it forms our decision-making and our perspective when we read words that take us on a journey rather than just giving us the facts. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. I know we say that every single week, but especially in this 100th episode, I just want to thank you, the listener, for taking time to invest in this podcast, hopefully to learn a lot about various cultural topics, ideas of theology, philosophy, and ethics in the public square, as well as a lot of really good books. So I just want to thank you personally for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to leave a review. You can leave that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. These reviews, we really take them seriously. They help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with other people. And as a reminder, just like every week, you can connect with each of these authors, check out their books, check out these episodes that we highlighted today on the podcast. You can do that at jasonpacker.com slash podcast, or check out the show notes for this episode. We'll link to each of the episodes, as well as some of the books that we highlighted today. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest tech news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hainer and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you all, and I hope you have a great week.